On this episode, through hiking warm fuzzies, lime green crocs, and being a dive master. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Well, welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. In today's show, we have somebody who um, I'm, I'm really impressed with, uh, Matthew Hengst, indigent hiker, as self-described indigent hiker. Um, he just came off of an incredible adventure on the East Coast um, that involved like 5,000 miles or a little bit over that on foot. And uh, has done a lot of interesting things. And I know um, he's worked with Severia through WTC. And I think Jason's just, you know, getting to know him. But uh, Matthew, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And um, what does what do you mean by indigent hiker? Maybe start with that. Well, up until about two, two and a half years ago, I was an IT guy. And I was just weekend warrior going out climbing peaks. I've uh, been with the Sierra Club Wilderness Travel Course from 2009. Uh, basically, in 2019, my girlfriend and I looked at the situation. I had another in a long line of IT companies going down from underneath me, and we decided to uh, maybe make a change, reprioritize some things. Um, and I was just going to take a summer off. Uh, that turned into a summer off where my girlfriend's a teacher, so uh, we went out climbed a bunch of peaks, hiked, did the JMT, turned into two weeks and two months in Thailand doing my dive master, which turned into an attempt on the Pacific Crest Trail for 2020, which was a, uh, you know, completely normal year that didn't have anything odd going on whatsoever. Um, I actually took off on that on May 5th while California was still in lockdown. And so I finished that about 148 days later. And by the time I was getting close to the end, I was kind of having to look at my goals again, because the problem with having a goal and actually accomplishing it is what do you do then? It's like asking for a raise and getting it right off. Uh, So I started by the last couple of weeks of the trail, I was looking at doing the Florida trail uh, and starting to think about, hey, I actually have done the PCT. Maybe I could try for the Triple Crown. When some other plans fell through, the following summer, 2021, turned into, well, I'm going to do the AT. And then I happened to come across mention of this trail called the Eastern Continental Trail, which combines the Florida Trail, Appalachian Trail, and some other things. And uh, that's how I spent the last 300 days or so. Wow. How long have you been off trail now? A couple of weeks. Uh, I It took me a little while to get out of Nova Scotia, mostly because I didn't intend to finish there originally. It was going to be Quebec, but things changed. So it took me about a week to get out of there, another week or two with my parents. And now I've been back in Southern California for a week or two. Was it challenging getting across and then coming back across the border with, with COVID and everything? Well, it was a big question on whether I was even going to be able to cross. When I started out, I said I was doing Key West Canada and anything north of the border was going to be a bonus. Uh, On the PCT, once we got up there, they weren't letting us go into Manning Park the year before. Fortunately, this year on August 9th, they opened up the Canadian border to U.S. citizens as long as you were vaccinated, and I was able to get vaccinated while I was on the AT, and as long as you had a uh, negative COVID test within 40 hours or so, 
And that was the trick because Maine was having a major surge. Fortunately, I ran across somebody from the International Appalachian Trail Group up there who was willing to drive me the 40 miles to the nearest place that would do the test. And then it was just a matter of walking over. So, uh, you know, 5,000 miles, um, what does that do? Like, what does that look like? And, and how does that feel to your body? You're doing a, like, how many miles are you averaging per day? And you know, how much of that is road walking versus trails? And, you know, has anybody even thought to do something like this before? Or, you know, or, or you're, you're, I would imagine you're one of the few to, to do something like that on that East Co- Eastern Continental Trail. Yeah, there, there have not been that many people who have done it. There are some Nimblewell Nomad, the guy that just set the record for oldest AT hiker. I think he's yep. the one that actually... Uh, named it. And I've run across a few others, though many of them seem to have done it in pieces or skipped parts. It's not a trail like the PCT, the AT, any of those. It's more of a route that combines multiple trails. The first 100 miles coming out of Key West was 100% on roads. And there are campgrounds along the way, but those fill up down in the Keys and they tend to be expensive anyway. So you're stuck basically hiding out in bushes and uh, just stealth camping. North of that, I ended up on canals and more roads until I got to the Florida Trail proper. The Florida Trail has uh, never seen a swamp it doesn't like. That is the one trail that will actually divert in order to make you you know, wade through something. Awesome trail, but <laughs> I ended up waist deep at one point in Bradwell Bay all alone. Um, balanced on a log, which was underwater. So I'm waist deep in this black water swamp. You can only see an inch or two down feeling with my hiking poles as I inch forward, trying to figure out where the ground is on the other side of this underwater log. How do you know it's a log and not an alligator is what I want to know. Well, it didn't move. I mean, yeah. The, the gators down there were actually really shy. That was one thing everybody always freaks out about, but they take off running the moment they see you. Other than I think one case where I had one uh, stare me down. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, uh, gators weren't the problem. It was uh, dogs in the rural areas. That was the the biggest animal issue, both in Florida, Alabama, and parts of Georgia. Oh, man. Did you get charged? It's bad. I, I can't imagine because I know they charge people on bikes. I can't imagine on yeah. foot. Yeah, I mean, being on foot, I don't have the option of getting away from them quickly. So when you hear the snarl and the dog's charging at you, you know, you're going to have to keep moving and get, you know, another quarter of a mile back. So I had to fight them off with hiking poles probably eight or ten times. Oh, geez. Wow. The pit bulls were the worst. Uh, sometimes it was like mis- mixed breed packs. So I'd have, you know, one hiking bowl, pole pointed at the most aggressive one, and then I'd be fending off the others with the other pole. Did you think about, I know it sounds silly, like bear spray or like bringing some sort of deterrent like that? Yeah, I actually had somebody who was uh, following my videos bring me out some dog spray and I carried it. I found, though, that it was too slow. I mean, basically, you're going along and I'm hiking for, you know, 12 hours a day, say. And out of nowhere, the dog will be on you. And by the time I get the dog spray out, get the safety off and get it, you know, pointed, the dog would already be on me. So I just started using my hiking poles because I always had those. Well, I guess if you spray someone's dog, they might spray you with something too. That's probably in some of those areas are maybe not the, not where you want to mess with people's dogs. (laughs) Well, you know, honestly, people just didn't seem to care in a lot of cases. I actually had a lady approach me after one of her dogs attacked me. It was a pack of three. Two of them were playing. One of them was after me. 
And after I got away from him, she drove up and started apologizing. And she's yelling at me just saying, well, you know, you can kick it if kick him. It's fine. Uh, he'll stop attacking if you kick him. Oh, don't worry. If he bites you, I'll put him down. Oh, and that was about the most <laughs> angry I got during that entire trip. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. It, it's this kind of, you know, it's very rural areas where it's just these large pieces of property next to a road. And that case was actually the Pinhoti Trail. So the road is part of a National okay. Scenic Trail. And she owned the land on both sides and didn't care. She didn't feel like she had to tie her dog up or have him on a fence or anything. And if he attacked somebody, well, you know, she would just put him down. No biggie. Well, let's, let's go back a little bit. We're sort of talking about your most current thing, but um, when did you first get into hiking? Was like the, the, you know, when you started with, say, the JMT and all that stuff, had you been hiking a lot before or was that just sort of your first experience or did you just, is this more of a recent thing for you? Uh, I've been hiking since about 2006 or so. Uh, I was doing distance cycling and I got an overuse injury, which seems to be a pattern for me. And while I was healing up, I couldn't ride. So I started hiking, found Sierra Club, ended up in WTC. And as with a lot of people, that kind of opened up a lot of doors as far as all these outdoor activities. So I started hiking with the local group in the local park, then the local mountains all around the greater LA area. Then I started doing desert peaks, Sierra peaks, and pretty much everything I could get on. This was actually my second time doing the JMT when I did it uh, pre-PCT. I had done it back in 2013 wow. as well. Yeah. And for listeners, um, WTC, we keep referencing it. It's the Wilderness Travel Course, and it's a 10-week course here in the Los Angeles area that teaches people all about outdoor skills. So everything, total beginners um, from hiking, navigation, clothing, snowshoeing, rock scrambling, snow camping, all the things. Um, and it happens every January and registration is actually open right now um, at wildernesstravelcourse.org. But um, no, it's a great program. Um, and uh, Matt, you were actually a group leader in Orange County, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, ever since 2012 or so, I think. And are you back to lead again this this winter? Yes. That's actually why nice. I came back to Southern California. It's, a vol it's all volunteer. The program, nobody's paid anything, but I just really enjoy volunteering for it, so I always make a priority to be back here. I've actually quit jobs, ended relationships, other things, just to be able to kind of stay in this area. And are you from Orange County originally, or is that just where you landed because of your wife's uh, teaching job? I was uh, born in Texas, but I've been out here since I was six or eight in different areas. Oh, cool. So you took the year off. What are your plans moving forward? Or do you plan to like get back into <laughs> IT and... You know, what what are plans moving forward? Yeah, that that's somewhat developing. I mean, it was never even supposed to be a year off. Originally, when Jen and I uh, decided on this plan, I was just going to quit on Memorial Day, get a job in October. And then, like I said, I ended up on the PCT the next year, which then turned into this. At the moment, we're kind of liking this reprioritizing, having more time, because when I was an IT person, I rarely had more than a couple of weeks off. Both times I did the JMT, I had to fast pack it in 10 or 11 days mm -hmm. because I didn't have the time off. And Jen being a teacher, she had summers off, but we couldn't go anywhere because my job wouldn't allow it. So it's kind of developing at the moment we're thinking we're going to do more like my Thailand trip where I was out there uh, getting my dive master. And, you know, we can do dive instruction, dive guiding, 
which would allow me to interact with people. I get to share something I'm passionate about. And we don't need to make a ton of money if we're kind of in this minimalist lifestyle we're currently doing. But as far as for the moment, the only sure thing is we're starting the CDT in uh, end of June, early July. And that'll probably take me, you know, to the end of the year next year. And then we'll see what makes sense from there. That's funny. That was going to be my next question. I was going to ask if you were going to, you know, get the triple crown, <laughs> if that was, you know, on your list. <laughs> yeah, that, that became the goal as soon as I finished the PCT. I'd wanted to do the PCT for about 10 years. So once I accomplished that and I'm sitting at the terminus, it's like, huh, okay, well, I am too low. What, what's the next goal? And that was the triple crown. And I always wanted to do the CDT. I never thought I would do the Appalachian Trail because it just didn't appeal to me as well. I, I found a more interesting way to do that, obviously, with the ECT. So here I am. Yeah. Are you struggling, like, readjusting to normal society? And uh, <laughs> are you having, like, off-trail, you know, funk and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Post-trail depression is kind of a real thing. I found it a little easier this time. It hit me really hard on the PCT. Uh, I was both physically wrecked. I could barely walk. And the hard thing is any of the activities I did before don't they just don't feel quite as epic. It's like this weekend, I'm supposed to go out and do a 30 mile backpack to hit a peak in Zion. That's really cool. But I've lived out on trail for 302 days now and walked across the country twice. So it's just hard to get as excited as I used to for charging out just for a little weekend loop or something. And the other thing is I found that I had a really hard time dealing with crowds since I've been back. If you stick me in like an airport with a lot of people, it's like I can't filter out all the background activity. It's getting better now after having been back for a couple of weeks, but that was a big struggle coming off trail. Matthew, so you mentioned that um, when you finished the PCT in 2020, your body was kind of wrecked. And that's, you know, that's, what is that? That's like half the distance of what you did this year on the Eastern coast. So what do you, what do you attribute the difference to? I mean, you know, you finished and you, you weren't as wrecked or, I mean, what, what it, the recovery was seemed to be a lot easier for you physically. Yeah. And that is surprising because the PCT was about half the distance and uh, half the time. And I'm not sure. I was expecting not to be able to walk without severe pain for a while getting off trail, talking to people on the AT. Of course, that's everybody's first through hike generally. So I was telling them that, you know, this is probably what you have to expect once you finish. Uh, the end of the PCT does have more gain, but it's also easier on your feet because it's dirt up near Hearts Pass. Whereas where I finished in Nova Scotia, the last couple hundred miles was all on roads. Honestly, the only way I can really explain it is just my body's kind of adjusted to having done this because one way to look at it is I did the PCT and then the ECT. The other is I've done 8,000 mile hiking over the last two years with a three month break in the middle because I was only off trail for three months to the day. Okay. So your, your body is kind of hardened to hiking and maybe adjusted to that in that regard. To an extent, yes. I mean, anytime you do a long hike, at least for me, the first 500 miles or so you're getting stronger as your body kind of adapts and you know all those little aches and pains work their way out and then it becomes just long-term kind of degradation management mm -hmm. i never had more than a couple of days off trail so i never fully 
healed up. I never felt fully rested, but at the same time you deal with all of that. So, yeah, I, I think it was just, I, I've managed to adjust to an extent because the AT, what parts of that were harder than the PCT. Yeah. I was just going to say, so what would you say, like, what were your biggest challenges on the P, on the PCT versus the, the AT and even like, or versus like West coast versus East coast, like, what were sort of big differences that you say are unique to each side? The PCT was my first long trail. Uh, you know, I'd done the JMT twice, but when you do the JMT in 11 days, you're not taking zeros or anything else. I didn't really know how I was going to react, how I was going to manage things. And I did learn some hard lessons. I had an Achilles injury I had to walk through. And just kind of the day after day, uh, grind of it took a lot of adjustment. The East Coast hikes were a lot different. I mean, the humidity out East is just ridiculous compared with the PCT. Anything got wet, you know, if I had my shirt soaked in sweat or my socks, there was no drying it out short of being in a hotel. Obviously, rain was a much bigger uh, factor. Also, for the AT proper, a lot of the hiking was a lot uh, worse. Um, the AT kind of has this reputation for uh, being a rough trail that doesn't believe in switchbacks. And once you get into Maine, you know, you're pulling on roots and scrambling up rocks rather than having some sort of switchback. Whereas the PCT, I could put my head down and, you know, just enjoy the hiking aspect of it. Uh, also the AT in particular, the AT was very different than the rest of the ECT. Uh, the crowds were a struggle for me because I like being around folks. I like talking to folks. I do not like crowds. And the AT was very much a crowded commercialized trail. What does that look like? Crowded and commercialized. Well, I was talking to somebody on the AT, on the AT who had done all the trails more than once. It was this, uh, older gentleman who was sitting on the side of the stream and he was talking about how everywhere on the AT people basically have their hand out, you know, the shuttle drivers, the hostels, all of that. The AT is big business. Any given road, there's somebody you can contact who you can pay to drive you somewhere where you can stay. Slack packing was massively more popular than I expected. Uh, slack packing being when you have somebody carry your gear for you and you, and meet you at the other end. So a lot of people were just running around with little day packs and you could actually find packages at some of the hostels. So for three or five days, you stay at the hostel, they drive you to the trailhead with your day pack, you do a day hike. And at the end of the day, they take you back to the hostel repeat. And that's not something that really existed on the PCT. My year on the PCT was a little bit unusual because of the whole COVID situation, but there's only one or two spots where that even exists. Never mind the fact that you don't really have the massive hostels along the PCT that you do on the AT or the shelters. So I, I've asked this of other people that have done the Triple Crown or at least done a couple of these. Um, if you Would you do one or the other again? Like, would you do the PCT again or would you do the AT again or, or neither? What, what do you think? What's your, what are your thoughts on that? I'd do the PCT again in a heartbeat. Uh, that was my first, and people seem more attached to whatever trail they do first, I found. In Nova Scotia, I met somebody who had done the AT than the PCT, so it was interesting to compare notes. Uh, my biggest worry doing the PCT is that it would feel disappointing just because my year we had so few people. The, in 2019, 1,900 people finished the PCT. My year, as near as we can tell, under 300 finished it. So it was much more of a wilderness experience, and I loved that. There was a community, but you never felt like you were walking in a crowd. 
the AT, it felt like I was walking in a crowd. It's very accessible. So people kind of come and go from it. And I didn't really care for kind of the hostile, the hostile type culture. So I, I would not do the AT again willingly at this point. And Matt, okay, so I need to, I think people are going to want to know. So like shoes, socks, like give us a rundown on what kind of footwear you're wearing over, you know, 8,000 miles of hiking. And um, yeah, shoes, socks. How many, how many pairs your, of those shoes gear, did you go through? Yeah. What, are your, what does your gear look like? Like literally, how does this happen? Uh. I had most of my gear since I figured out things on the PCT. Uh, I have very wide feet, so I'm very difficult to fit. So ultras were the go-to shoe for me. The lone peaks that are very popular tend to have a reputation for falling apart. And I had that issue in Washington, especially. I could only get 200 miles out of them and then I'd have to swap them out, which is difficult if you're in the middle of the woods in, you know, remote Washington. For the ECT, I was using Olympus shoes, also by Ultra. They're a little heavier duty, and so I found they held up better. I just have to be religious about swapping them every 500 miles. And I learned my lesson on the PCT because I got up to Kennedy Meadows South, anticipating being able to buy a new pair of shoes to get me through the Sierra, only to find that they had no size 14s in stock. Um, which should have been obvious, but in, ret in retrospect, but you know, what you're going to do. Uh, so I had to go through the entire Sierra with shoes that were failing on me. Uh, I think for the ECT, I went through about nine pairs. Uh, basically whenever I get a new pair, we figure out, okay, what's 500 miles ahead and then arrange to have them sent there. Sock wise on the PCT, I really, uh, darn toughs worked well for me. I was using the midweight darn tough socks, uh, being able to exchange them for a new pair when they wear out is a plus when you're trying to save money because you're hiking all the time. I found that I couldn't dry those out on the AT. So kind of the trend with everything on the AT for me was I went, uh, clothing wise is I went lighter. Uh, so the really, really lightweight darn tough socks ended up taking me through most of it. I tried the Njinjis that everybody likes also, but I put holes in those way too quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm 13 and I can never find shoes. I can't even imagine what it must be like if you're... I mean, I'm, some of these brands probably don't even make a size 14, right? Is that... Yeah, Ultras and Topos did make them, but with all the shortages that have been going on the last couple of years, obviously, you know, supply chain made things more difficult. And 13 is, I think, the last of the standard sizes. 14 and 15 are extended sizing, so they make a fraction of those that they make for the other sizes. Have you looked into sponsorship and like reaching out to them, maybe being an ambassador? <laughs> I feel like you'd be a shoe in haha -ha, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I probably should at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Then maybe they could make them in bright green. That, that would be a big plus. Is, is bright green your signature color? Yeah. Bright green. And then uh, I kind of accent it with bright orange. I, I have a, a neon green Jeep Wrangler when I'm in town and most, and my pack, I got a new ULA Catalyst uh, partway through the ECT, and it's actually neon orange and neon green. So I don't have to worry about anybody stealing it because everybody would know exactly who that pack belongs to. And it's good for hunting Brilliant. season, too. Yeah. Y yes, which was another big concern because there was hunting season. There was, you know, random gunfire uh, in places. It's good to be visible when you're on kind of a less standard trail. 
No, absolutely. Well, we've gone through the gear. And what, what are your like after now having done all this? What are your what's your diet? What how, what do you eat? Like what kind of foods do you bring? What have you found that you don't like to bring? Do you switch it up? Uh, I I like to buy my food as I go. Whenever I see somebody prepping for a big trail and they have thirty some boxes set up to get them through the next six months, that stresses me out just thinking about. Uh, so. Uh, basically my main food item is usually nor rice sides because they're cheap. You know, a mountain house will cost you nine bucks or so a nor rice side. You can get at any Ralph's gas station, et cetera. And it's a buck. And then I supplement that with cheese and tortillas and that makes a solid, um, dinner. Breakfast is usually just bars or peanut butter and tortillas. And then I have kind of a rotating selection of snack bars, you know, crackers. I'll sometimes do the normal salami and other items midday. But it really varied on where I was going. I mean, on the AT, you have lots of access to stores that have all the, you know, hiker classics. When I was doing the Alabama road walk, I was on rural Alabama roads for 200 miles. And literally it was whatever I could find at a gas station. So sometimes it was just, you know, they have the buffet of, fi- of fried foods and I would be eating off that for part of the day. Mm-hmm. Other times it's chips and whatever bars they had. So I had to learn to be kind of flexible along the way here. And, and do you have any, like how many people have done, so I think you talked about it a little bit earlier, but it, it, uh, like, how do you even know this route exists? Is, you know, how do you know, like, I know obviously you have the Pinhoa yeah. Trail and you're connecting that to the AT, but how do you even know the route to get from, you know, to the Pinhoti Trail and then from the Pinhoti Trail to the to the to the to the AT. Is this like a an established route? Are there maps? Is there like a a guide? How, how did you figure out how to navigate it? I came across a YouTube video when I was prepping to do the Florida Trail, return home, and then go do the AT. Uh, a guy named Jupiter did the CT a few years ago, and that was enough to get me started. And then the person who came up with the ECT route is Nimblewell Nomad. And there was some information out there. It was honestly a, a little bit spotty. And there's only one place on the entire route where you see a sign that says Eastern Continental Trail, and that's Flag Mountain at the start of the Pinhoti. The rest of the time, it was a mix of, you know, I had gut hooks for the Florida Trail. I was able to get a guidebook that told me how to get through the Keys and the Everglades for Florida. Alabama Roadwalk, uh, one of the Places along the Pinhoti, the Pinhoti Outdoor Center, they basically kind of help people who are doing that section. And so they gave me a GPX that I was able to follow. The AT was easy. Uh, the International AT was a mix. Uh, Maine, New Brunswick, and Quebec is currently on gut hooks. Uh, for the others, I got a GPX from the trail organization and just followed that. Sometimes you have blazes. The AT and the Alabama Roadwalk, those were all blazed. The Florida Trail was well blazed. Other times, you know, you're just walking down a road and keeping an eye on your phone. The three of us have used gut hook, but maybe you want to tell tell the you know tell our listeners what gut hook, gut hook is just in case they uh, they haven't uh, so gut hook is uh, an app on uh, that you can get on your phone it was actually recently rebranded to far out i believe though everybody's going to call it gut hooks for the next decade or so it's basically an interactive guidebook on your phone it gives you maps it gives you the route and more importantly it gives you waypoints so in the olden days a couple of years ago uh, on the pct you had to download a google spreadsheet that showed you which water sources were flowing or not. Gut hooks allows you to see all that because the waypoints are entered there. And more importantly, any user can leave comments. So when you're out in the desert section of the PCT and you're hiking to the next water source, 
you can look and see, oh, somebody was there two days ago and they said it was flowing and have a reasonably good expectation of having water when you get there. Uh, it also has waypoints for all the towns. So you get to find out what hotels were cheaper, uh, which ones have been problematic for hikers. On the Pinhoti and the Alabama Roadwalk in parts of Florida, it had information on dog attacks and other things like that. So it's basically kind of taken over the hiking world. Yeah, it's a great app, honestly. I mean, I, I think the only time I've, I've been able to use it is on uh, the Wonderland Trail with Jeff and our friend Derek a couple years ago. But just like the water source, and I like that it has the elevation um, feature as well. So you can see where you are, you know, on like the elevation plot as well as, you know, just the map. I thought that was kind of a neat, you know, so you knew how much suffering you had left to do before you were finally going <laughs> to make it to the top or make it, you know, or start the downhill. Right. How are the mosquitoes? Uh, compare the mosquitoes. How are the PCT mosquitoes versus the uh, the East Coast mosquitoes? The PCT mosquitoes, it wasn't a super wet year when I went. And since I started on May 5th, it was fairly late. Uh, they were really bad for the Jack Main area in the Sierra Nevada. Um, but we were out of those within a week. And then I had a few of them up in Tahoe. In Florida, the no were brutal. You know, mosquitoes you can see and you kind of can kind of slap them off of you and kill them when they're in the tent at the end of the day. No are very hard to keep track of until all of a sudden you look down and it looks like you have some sort of weird pox all over your leg. Once I got to the Florida Trail proper, mosquitoes were brutal, but only right around sunrise and right around sunset. So as long as I was in the tent by sunset, I actually didn't have to deal with them. It stopped me hiking uh, into night more often just because of that. And then once I got through Florida, they weren't really ever a concern other than isolated places like Great Barrington, where it was just really muddy and all of a sudden they kind of came out of nowhere. You're not selling me on the Florida thing when you say like the words humidity and no seams. That's just, and you know, that's, and dog attacks. That's not really selling me on hiking. through. Yeah. (laughs) Floating on legs and black Black swamps swamps. that you can't, you can't see through the bottom. Did did you like that stretch or was it, was it more of a getting through a thing? I mean, yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about the chiggers and ticks. Oh, yeah. The funny thing is... Of all the sections of this, you know, because there's basically the Keys Everglades Roadwalk, the Florida Trail, the Alabama Roadwalk, the Pinhoti Trail, about 70 miles to the Benton Mackay, the Appalachian Trail, and then uh, the main New Brunswick, PEI, and Nova Scotia sections of the IAT. The Florida Trail ended up being the one that was the most memorable, that I enjoyed the most. It was very rough. I mean, when you start in Big Cypress, the idea of having water crossing shoes is a joke out there because if I had swapped into water crossing shoes, every time I hit water, I'd still be down there. You just have to get used to walking through water, but it's also very unique and lush. And I went through a lot of areas that weren't like anything I'd ever been before. So when people ask, you know, what I thought of the ECT, I tell them, you know, it was a great overall experience. There was a lot of rough spots. And if I was going to do one part again, it would actually be the Florida Trail. I figure I'll do that southbound next time. Not much elevation gain. I guess that's a plus, right? (laughs) Yeah, the high point of the trail is in Eglin Air Force Base, and I believe it's uh, 234 feet above sea level. Most of my gain was hotels. I I always (laughs) joke with my Florida friends that the high point of of, uh, Florida is Epcot Center. 
I know it's probably <laughs> not, but I always, you know, <laughs> if you want, I guess if you don't like climbing, that's a good uh, through hike for someone to do, right? I mean, no, you know, as long as you you can tolerate the other things. Um, I always think the swamps look beautiful, just again with the humidity and the bugs and the, you know, the the water. It just doesn't seem like much fun to sort of, you know, to go through that environment. I mean, the humidity was much worse on the AT. The humidity yeah. was absolutely miserable around like the Pennsylvania section of the AT. Yeah. Florida, it was warm, but the the season for the Florida Trail is January through March. It's one of the few trails out there in the U.S. that you can do that time of year. So while there was some of that. Uh, you know, humidity wasn't a big thing and the water, you just kind of got to deal with it. It's like, if you go in the Sierra during the spring, you're going to have to deal with fast water crossings. Yeah. Uh, this was a very high year, water year for Florida. So keep in mind when I'm talking about being waist deep in Bradwell, this was the highest water in like 15 years, I believe I was told. But the hard part psychologically is just taking that first step where, you know, the water floods into your shoe and just soaks everything. And you're like, oh, <laughs> and then you move forward and five minutes later, you're just kind of like happily sloshing along. And it's just you deal with it one step at a time and it gets you back into these really unique areas. Now, do you use waterproof shoes or do you not do that because of that? You're walking through the water and you want them to dry out faster. No, no, I, I just use really lightweight uh, trail runners. You know, the ultra Olympuses, mm -hmm. you can almost feel when the wind's blowing. So the water will drain out. Waterproof shoes, I would have had to empty them constantly. The initial swamp, I actually tried Crocs and socks to see how that would work. And then I gave up on that after, you know, the first swamp because it just, it was better just to have my normal shoes on and gaiters and be able to go through, especially once I got to the gum swamps. And just the fashion of that is so awful. I mean, even on a trail, I mean, trying to get away with Crocs and socks, I don't know. That's They were neon green, so I would say they're quite fashionable. <laughs> What's a gum swamp? <laughs> Tell me more. Imagine stepping into mud that is the consistency of warm chewing gum. So you sink ah. down to your knee, have to pull it up, and then keep going. Ugh. That sounds brutal. Yeah. <laughs> I have a humanity question for you. So obviously, you know, you, this one, there's a lot more road walking and it's a lot more, you know, population. Like, do you have any good human connection stories that came out of this trip where it was i want to ask if it restored your faith in humanity through hiking in general tends to give everybody a giant warm fuzzy because even people that you might have some severe disagreements with you're interacting with them in a context where they tend to be predisposed towards you i was up in maine at one point where i kind of ended up locked inside of a hunting lodge with a disturbed individual running around outside and as I'm listening to the owners talk, uh, politically, they are people that I would have some strong disagreements with, but they were super friendly and actually like gave me an, a night in one of their cabins for free just because they didn't want me sleeping on the side of the road while this like individual was running around. And I had so many people that just, you know, came out to meet me. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was just to bring a drink. Sometimes it was just to chat. And yeah, it's it's a much more kind of positive experience than being back in civilization, ironically. So you can't wait to get back out? Pretty much. I'm, I'm enjoying diving while I'm here, and I'm obviously committed to the wilderness class, but long trails are kind of addicting. When I started the ECT, I was super happy to be back on trail in just three months because I was looking for that kind of sense of you know, purpose and progress that you get every day on the trail. Cause you always have, you know, where you're going. 
you know, you might have thousands of miles ahead of you, but you're making progress every day and you have a goal that you're working towards. And that was very healthy for me versus sometimes, you know, depending on your job, it can feel uh, pointless at times. So right. you know I, yeah, I am very much looking forward to you... the CDT. Yeah. <laughs> sure. All right. On the CDT, are you going uh, southbound, I assume? Yeah, that's the plan. We we have a, another trip that was going to happen in uh, earlier July or early June. So our plan is to do that, and then we'll come back and go up to Glacier late June, early July timeframe. We're still working out the specifics. Now, I, I think you might be the first diving instructor we've actually had on, on the podcast. I don't know if Jeff or Severia might know someone else. We haven't really talked much about diving. Um, yeah. Uh, Right. I, I, it's kind of a great, I've only, so basically I got certified like seven, eight years ago and haven't gone since long story, but uh, what do you talk about diving? Like what made you interested in diving and, and do you have any recommendations for people that want to want to give it a try? So I'm, I'm not a dive instructor yet. I'm oh, currently okay. a dive master, which is oh. the uh, basically assistant to the instructor level. Gotcha. Diving was something I always wanted to do. I liked being in the water and I'd always put it off because it's expensive. Getting certified, you know, it's 500 bucks and you have to buy all this gear and everything. Uh, then I tried it and loved it so much. Uh, a lot of people, if you say, oh, how much did you dive last year? Oh, I dived, dived a bunch. I did like 50 dives. I did 230 some my first year diving. Wow. I, I tend to have a little bit of a problem with moderation. You know? <laughs> But it's the closest thing you can get to flying because yeah. you're, you're dropping into this water with like 50 foot visibility off of Catalina here. You've got kelp going all the way to the bottom. You've got fish swimming at all levels and you can move, you know, in a 3D plane. It's like nothing else out there. It's also uncomfortable. It's got some, you know, there's a skill set to it. Uh, but it's just hard to kind of explain. I've started making videos of my dives just so people can see how much of a change there is once you go underwater. Cause it's one thing to snorkel where you're kind of like looking down at the fish. It's another to go off the coast here of Laguna, drop in and be doing these flying through these underwater canyons with schools of, of fish with seals playing with you. It's an amazing thing. And not not near enough people have tried it out, I would say. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I got certified in Catalina, and like what you're talking about is amazing. I mean, the biggest bummer yeah. is literally I got certified. And getting certified, let's be honest, it's not very much fun. I mean, it's important that you do it because, you know, it's like this is what happens if your mask gets yanked off. So you got to go down, and they yank your mask off, and you got to put it back on. You got to <laughs> yeah. go through all this stuff. So basically, I, I went through all of that, and then I got like one fun dive after that. So I've literally done like one dive that wasn't me having to like, you know – breathe or the, the the instructors doing the stuff to you to make sure you don't die when you do it you know but it is an amazing experience i, I have to figure out a way to to do it more often because it's fantastic and and you're doing a great job of selling it too um you know uh <laughs> i want to i want to swim with the kid yeah. through, the, through the with the fish that that, that does sound fantastic <laughs> and and if anybody's only gotten certified and stopped there i will say when you go through the certification they're just trying to teach you some basic muscle memory and the rules so you don't hurt yourself yeah no for it's sure. much different when you go out with friends and all of a sudden it's like okay we have a tank of air in our back here you're going to follow me signal me when uh you get to half and then you get to go out and have fun and enjoy the dive and do some longer dives I actually love taking out my friends who have just gotten certified because you get to really kind of share how awesome it is. Yeah. Because I've gotten to see a couple of fish and do a couple of things during training, but the, the fun dives are where it's at. No, absolutely. I need to do more. 
It's not all my fault. My, I got my friend convinced me to get certified. He's like, yeah, we'll dive all the time. And then we have not di- gone once since then. So shame on him. He had a kid. So that's an excuse. But, you know, it's still like, oh, man, really? <laughs> it's also time intensive because, I mean, you got to go get tanks. You got to go yeah. and washing all of the gear, especially if you say, oh, I don't know, live in a campground in a van. That, <laughs> that takes a significant amount of time as well. But totally worth it. No, absolutely. That's funny. When you said dive master, I assume the master thing was like a, a ninja or a karate person. And, you know, as a master, <laughs> you were like the one that, that, that taught everyone. But I guess there's a different designation. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because dive master sounds really impressive until you go and you do that. So that was a two month uh, internship I did out in Thailand in the Simlin Islands. And then you look at what you're allowed to do as a dive master and you can guide people who are already certified. And you can assist the instructor in very limited capacity while they teach people how to dive. You might know this. Like, like I got a patty. I probably had it seven, eight years. How long does that thing last? Is that a kind of thing you need to go back and redo? Probably Technically, expired. it never expires. Okay. But right. if you just got certified, didn't dive, and then you're coming back to it, oh, um, I would generally recommend yeah. you take a refresher. Yeah, I would absolutely do that anyway. I wouldn't go down. Well, dude, I was just curious, you know, how much, like, do I got to go in the swimming pool again? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that I want to go to the swimming pool in the North San Fernando Valley again. You know, maybe just like, you know, can I, it's like, can I go down and do one dive with someone to remind me of everything and then, you know, be okay? <laughs> when, when my girlfriend got back into it, she did a refresher. She went down to La Jolla and yeah. just did a dive in the ocean with somebody. Uh, the local shop that I go to here, uh, they put you in the pool and then I think they take you out in the ocean. Because the thing is, if you're trying to do a refresher uh, while beach diving, beach diving is a whole lot of fun. You know, if you're on a boat, it's a matter of fall off the boat, you're in the water and you're good. When we're beach diving, you actually have to time the waves and you've got, you know, 70 pounds of stuff on you as you're walking through the sand. So if you get knocked over, that can be kind of difficult. So depending on your comfort level, strength, et cetera, sometimes getting to at least get a feel for all that in a more calm uh, pool environment is a little nicer. No, yeah, but yeah, there's absolutely places that'll take you out in controlled circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll have to. I've been saying that every year, and I haven't done it. I'm going to give myself a pass on the COVID years, but I need to something I need to do again. Yeah, we need Jason. We need to hook you up with with Matthew, and maybe uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, get you out there. Yeah. Um, hey, Matthew. So next year, if all goes according to plan, which who knows, right? But uh, yeah, you, right. you complete the CDT and and therefore the Triple Crown, and and uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I've heard over and over that. There are fewer people who have completed the Triple Crown than have summited Everest. And so you're in a pretty rare company to, to be able to do that. So, and you mentioned that, you know, as you finished the PCT, you were like, oh, well, what's next? And, and so the, the, CD, the Triple Crown became sort of the, your next big goal. Looking in your crystal ball, what do you see beyond that? At the moment, it, it kind of depends because... We, my girlfriend and I kind of switched our lifestyle around to be able to do this. We don't have an apartment. We're very mobile. We have a van that we can throw into storage. Uh, at the moment, that's working well for us. And um, if I just snap my fingers and all of a sudden I'm done with the CDT, there's a bunch of other trails out there I would like to do. Uh, there is a lot of lesser known trails. And one of the things I like doing is doing stuff like that and then sharing it with people. In addition to doing the JMT, for example, I've done something called the Theodore Solomon Trail, which is not something that people know about, but it's a Western alternative to the JMT. 
Have you ever heard of that, Jeff? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. I did the Theodore Solomon's Trail, but as a section hike. So say, um, Apparently there's a guide yeah. coming on it. Sorry, Matthew, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, yeah. I figured I should throw a plug into a guidebook <laughs> that may or may not be coming from one of my co-hosts. Yeah, but uh, there's a lot of stuff like that out there. Um, there's a hot spring trail proposal, for example, that I'm looking at. Then, I mean, if I've gone north-south across the country three times, you have things like the American Discovery Trail going east-west. I've been chompy at the bit to do the Arizona Trail. I'm just waiting till there's not fire closures and I can actually do the entire thing because I want to be able to do the entire thing. Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of different stuff. I've, I'd love to be able to go and continue and do the international AT that actually goes all the way to Morocco now. So if I could figure out how to pay for it, I would fly to Morocco and then basically hike across Europe doing all the segments of the IAT and then connect back through uh, Newfoundland in the end. So I'm not near running out of things to do and I wouldn't, I don't see myself repeating you know, any of the big three again, just because there are so many other things out there. The Te Aurora, for example, in New Zealand, I really want to do that. That one's more complicated because the season interferes with my girlfriend's uh, job, but it's a goal. All right. So I have to ask the question, how are you supporting yourself while you're doing all this walking? <laughs> There's that part of the logistics. <laughs> Yeah, basically, uh, we got rid of everything we could. I mean, when I was in IT, I had uh, an apartment I was renting, and I got rid of my fish tank, which that hurt to do. I had like a 200-gallon reef aquarium. Uh, got rid of the apartment, got rid of most of the stuff. We downsized to a conversion van, um, and we stay at local campgrounds to minimize cost. When we're not here, the van goes into storage. We have one storage locker that holds the gear in between. So basically our big money items, uh, kind of went away or, or were minimized. And my girlfriend is a high school teacher who really, really loves her job. And so that, that's kind of how we've been managing this. Like I started the PCT solo. She joined me for her summer, and then when she went back to school, uh, I finished solo. Could you see yourself ever going back to IT, like after this, like after all of this, uh, ama you know, amazing life in the outdoors? And then can you, you know, again, my day job is sitting yeah, staring at the a screen. What's the end game? Yeah, <laughs> you know, do you just, you know, like you say, you're the itinerant uh, hiker for for now until the end, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depends. The The vague goal we have now is we're hoping to do seasonal dive work, something similar to Thailand, where I can go to a place for a couple of months out of the year, uh, get that kind of rewarding sort of thing I get out of WTC, where I get to interact with people who are pushing their boundaries in a wilderness context and make enough money to offset costs. Uh, would I go back to IT if I had to? Yes. Um, but quite frankly, the toll it was taking on me wasn't really worth it. I was living a healthy lifestyle. I was backpacking 40 some weekends a year. I was working out multiple times during the week and I was going to be put on blood pressure medication um, right before I quit. And then I went to the doctor a couple of weeks after I quit and he's like, hey, your blood pressure's great. What'd you change? And it's like, well, I quit my job. So it's not that I didn't enjoy aspects of IT. It's not that if I didn't find the right opportunity, I wouldn't do like some limited work. But at least for the time being, assuming we can manage it, the goal is to not go back to a standard, you know, nine to five full time 
sort of situation. I've always kind of looked at IT as one of those zero upside jobs too, in the sense that you can do everything you can possibly to do to make it right. And you, you generally won't get positive reinforcement. The only time that you get feedback is when stuff goes wrong. Right. So, so it's like, you know, I don't know. I try to, av- just in my life, I try to avoid those zero upside jobs. <laughs> yeah. And I, I liked aspects of it. Um, I, I worked in IT for 20 years but at the same time, it's really frustrating to pay your dues, work really hard, um, be a good employee for somebody only to be laid off when the company sold shifts uh, or in the case of my last job, when the owners allegedly embezzle, you know, millions and millions of dollars out of the company and everything folds all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> seems to be the, the the current state of most jobs, though, most industries, you know, are big corporate jobs, they sell you know, change hands. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. You know, you, uh, it's a crazy thing to navigate and definitely stressful. I think you have the right idea to just, just be an itinerant hiker until it's, you know, <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot for one thing. Can you pick your favorite parts of the PCT say, or JMT and, uh, and the, you know, your, your, uh, your East coast hike as well. Uh, favorite part of the PCT. I mean, most people's answer is usually the Sierra. Um, yeah. the Sierra was kind of, my backyard because I was up there all the time doing peaks and things. Um, so I actually like the desert section a lot better. People tend to complain about the desert section of the PCT, but it varies more than any other section. You know, you're down uh, walking through, you know, desert scrub, and then you're up at 9,000 feet on San Jacinto. Then you're going through all these wind farms. Uh, so that was the part. And I was finally doing the thing that I'd wanted to for 10 years. So that was kind of the part that stood out on the PCT. I also really liked Oregon. Oregon was kind of mellow. The, you know, forests out there were nice. Uh, as far as the ECT, like I said before, somehow after doing this entire thing, uh, really the Florida Trail was the part that stuck out the most and the one that I would repeat in a heartbeat because it's a cool trail. There's a lot of work being done on it. There's a lot of enthusiasm. The Florida Trail Association does an amazing job cutting and maintaining that trail because while I'm waist deep in a swamp, you know, crawling over logs and everything, it's actually blazed. Uh, they're dealing with Florida weather where a hurricane comes through, wipes everything out, knocks all the brush down, and they keep that trail functional. Uh, so I really enjoyed that part. I also enjoyed uh, Nova Scotia a lot. I was there when the trees were changing. So it was absolutely beautiful, especially going up the cove where I finished at Meat Cove. However, the hiking was was along roads, so that part wasn't quite as exciting. Uh, if I'd had a little more time, I would have done the 400 miles in Newfoundland, and that looked like a little more wild. Uh, as far as, let's see, the main section of the IAT was probably my second favorite, you know, Florida trail, main IAT, because you finish Katahdin and then all of a sudden you leave behind all the crowds and you've got a series of shelters. It's very IAT like there are, uh, were many more animals. I saw like two moose the day after I finished Katahdin after not having seen them through all the AT. And it just has a lot of really spectacular spots, like walking the border stripe between, uh, you know, Maine and Canada, where you've just got this cut line you're going on for miles and miles. There were there were a lot of pretty spots, but those were kind of my favorite. The AT in Maine was quite pleasant, but there were also downsides with, you know, crowds and things up there, which aren't really my thing, I've found. So every day, obviously, when you're on the trail, you're like walking in a direction, right? You're like, have some place to go. So what does a day in the life of Matt Hanks look like now? sort of now that you're home is it like you know do you have to set mini goals for each day is it just sort of do you let the day sort of take you where it will like how much structure do you 
kind of incorporate now, now that you have like day-to-day goals versus a long goal? I kind of have a non-standard circumstance here because, like I said, we're we're living in campgrounds out of a conversion van, and the campgrounds aren't those long-term stay sorts where we can park for two months at a time. So every couple of days, I have to move. I'm currently sitting in a parking lot in the back of my van because I had to vacate the campground today, uh, and we have to put the van in storage because we're leaving town. Uh, it's kind of a constant struggle because since Jen works and I dive all the time, we have to have our vehicles plus the van. So any given day, we have to ferry vehicles back and forth. Uh, I don't generally have days where I'm just sitting around looking for something to do. I still have a (laughs) bunch of notes and videos and things I want to make over the ECT hike. I have a tendency to uh, constantly make plans diving anytime I can. You know, next week when I'm back, I've got at least two days I'm diving and probably more. So there's not really a standard day. I mean, I wake up, I drive Jen to her car because, again, we have to kind of juggle the vehicles. And then I'm usually off to dive. That'll last me until early afternoon when I have to wash gear. I get a couple of hours working on videos, write-ups, et cetera. And then I'm meeting Jen again to swap the cars back for the evening. So it's not like I came home. I just yeah. sat in my apartment in you know my underwear for a week at a time. there's still still lots of logistics (laughs) yeah it's we have multiple spreadsheets to manage which vehicle goes where and you know where we're meeting it's keeps me uh from getting bored so there's a question how do you keep everything charged like are you just using solar like when you're on these big you know because i'm assuming you have a phone i'm assuming you don't have a lot of tech with you but like what are you using for tech and how are you keeping yourself connected so when i'm on the trail uh the phone is kind of the key item it's not like the trendy answer but when somebody was asking on a facebook group like what my most multi-purpose piece of gear was my answer was my phone you know it's my camera it's my communication device it's my guidebook it's my map you know it's got all of these things to it uh I get a new iPhone every year, so the battery lasts as long as possible. I carry a 20K charger brick, and generally that will last for about a week, depending on how much I use it. It's usually on airplane mode, um, so if it runs down early, it's usually because I have one bar and I'm trying to communicate with somebody back in town. Uh, I have a rechargeable headlamp, and I have a Garmin uh, InReach Mini. Those are my electronic items, and all I have to do is every five days or so, find a place where I can plug in the brick. The brick that I carry can charge up in three or four hours, which is important. The cheaper ones charge in seven to eight hours. And it's really frustrating when you are ready to go, you need to go because you have to get to the next camp, but you're waiting for that last light to finish charging on the power brick. Um, But that has let me eliminate single-use batteries completely because that was one of the things that was bothering me. You generate a lot of, uh, you know, spent batteries when you're out hiking all the time just using non-rechargeable batteries solar is one of those things a lot of people ask about uh the problem is when you're hiking solar panels don't work real well they need to have unobstructed view of the sun and when you're going through trees and everything else that's not really uh you know you can't do that and you're not sitting around at camp enough at the end of the day to have it out in the sun and be able to charge anything Also, phones don't do well charging directly off of a solar panel. So generally, you have to use the panel to charge a battery, use the battery to charge your phone. So you're already carrying the battery anyway. So the solar panel is kind of a waste. I bought one. I played with it. I came to the same conclusion everybody does. Pretty much anybody out on a long trail, they're just carrying a battery pack along the way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I danced with the the solar thing as well, and just found it. Especially again, like you said, you got to bring the battery anyway. Why not just bring the battery yeah. and not spend your time? And you know, and then there's situate like again, it felt like there you you know even you know on the JMT there were so few days we had five days of bad weather, so it's like well no charge you know it wasn't working then you know you brought it up yeah. to Alaska we had like we saw the sun for like, you know what I mean? Like three hours on two weeks. It's like, so you yeah. end up just lugging these, these heavy things around. And now these battery packs are just so much of a better way to go. Um, and they just get lighter with higher capacity. Yeah. I would love for the solar panels to work, but yeah, I carried a solar panel on a trip once and, and that was it. It's been a, a brick ever since. If you're curious about what the Eastern Continental is like, uh, one of my experiments this time around was I made videos along the way. I came out of the PCT and I had notes, I had pictures, and I did write-ups on my website. Uh, and that it was fun to do. I enjoy writing, but I, it didn't kind of capture kind of the day-to-day state of my mind as, you know, I had good days and bad days. So this time I was just filming a minute or two throughout the day. So I ended up with 116 episodes, 28 and a half hours of basically vlogs going all the way from Key West to the tip of Nova Scotia. So if you're interested, First Church of the Masochist Hikes on YouTube. And, and where else can they find uh, people follow you online and find your trail guides and, and connect with you if they're interested? Uh, my website is firstchurchofthemasochist.com. Uh, my trail name's Masochist. It's been a long-running joke. So if you go there, that has my Instagram, YouTube channel, everything else. And that's where I used to publish all of my peak write-ups and stuff like that. Cool. Perfect. Well, of course, it'll be in the show notes So uh, for people that want to check it out. Um, yeah. Thank, thanks for coming on, Matthew. It's been awesome talking to you. That's some, some pretty awesome adventures you've had there over the last few years. Thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track almost there is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. As always, thanks for listening.